to do a podcast like this for a while. There's a lot to be said about the Facebook group I'm in, Subtle Asians Bay Area, regarding their political and social beliefs. Now before I begin, I don't mean to come off like I dislike the people in the group. All of the people I've hung out with are great. They're nice, funny, smart, and talented. So please don't take it like I'm ragging on them. But what I want to do is talk about their worldview on politics and social justice. The dominant tendency within Subtle Asians Bay Area, and dare I say the other groups affiliated with them, such as Subtle Asians Dating, Subtle Asian Traits, and so on, it's fundamentally race reductionist, essentialist, and technocratic. Now I'll share my critique on the technocratic side in the future. Now to be fair, many of the things I'm critiquing are not unique to this Facebook group. It's part of our mainstream political discourse. So what I want to do here is connect the statements that are commonly made in this Facebook group to the mainstream thinking and critique it. I'm going to use a lot of quotes and bring in points made by professors of black politics and political science. I think the very same issues that these scholars see about black politics can be extrapolated to cover Asian Americans as well. So let's dive in. Now, if you're content under neoliberal capitalism, or if you're trying to be a race leader that finds it appealing to speak for and dictate the issues that your ethnic group faces, then the problems that I see in Subtle Asians Bay Area might not be an issue. However, if you believe in egalitarian outcomes and an economic system that focuses on prioritizing people over profit, then we have to fight against this tendency that plagues our mainstream political discourse and exhibited by contemporary activists and people concerned with equality. So today, we're just going to focus on race reductionism and diversity discourse within this Facebook group. Now, there's a group chat within this group that gives us space for, you know, people to talk about political issues, racial issues, and so on. So much of my work and inspiration comes from the discussion that's shared within this messenger group. I found some of the recent comments interesting. Regarding racism affecting Asian Americans, one person said the following, quote, I've always known that as the fabric of society begins to unravel, people's true nature comes out. You think it's bad now? If we get into a serious war with China, expect lynchings and whatnot. So, unironically, arm yourselves. If you thought you had friends among minorities or the white population here in the Bay, you're dead wrong. The only people that truly have your back when shit hits the fan is other Asians. End quote. So, we have someone who believes that in a potential, you know, military conflict or racial conflict, there's going to be a race war between whites or Asians or the dominant side versus one that's sympathetic to the enemy. He implies that Asians should expect to get lynched given the circumstances. Then he states that if you have white friends or other minority friends, don't expect them to have your back when shit hits the fan and the only people that have your back is other Asians. This is simply ridiculous and completely devoid of any analysis and sounds more like a knee-jerk emotional reaction to invoke fear and a call to buy firearms. Now, it actually hurts my brain to even read it. Now, at the heart of the matter is the assumption that all Asians have some sort of shared values or are a monolithic political block. As Professor Cedric Johnson, someone who I will be invoking a lot along with Adolf and Toure Reed would say, there's the assumption that racial affinity is synonymous with political constituency. Now, to say it another way, 
all ethnic minorities have similar concerns, therefore they all vote or are expected to vote in the same way. So the belief that only Asians will have your back is delusional and obscures what's happening in actual reality and the complex social and class relations that are happening within groups. Asians aren't a special group that exists outside of capitalist social relations, the same relations that affect every other group and are not individuals that only see themselves through the lens of race. Now, it's kind of weird and hypocritical that we fiercely and defiantly tell members of other groups that Asians are very diverse in terms of experiences, national origin, cultures, languages, and so on. Yet, when referring to ourselves, there's a tendency to assume that by being Asian, there's a unitary set of concerns and interests and we're, you know, bound solely by our race. Now let's go on to a second quote. So this gentleman was agreeing with the previous quote I talked about, and he stated, quote, I agree with quoted person in a context of Asian American issues. White friends may have your back but would they support policies of initiatives that are good for Asians as a whole? I think ultimately they wouldn't, because they don't benefit in any ways from doing so. So for example, how many white males are helping us push for better Asian male representation in media? End quote. Okay, so this gentleman somewhat answered his own questions. He doesn't see white Americans coming out and supporting Asians, because they wouldn't benefit from it. He ends with the same liberal, self-serving bromide about representation in the media and white males not coming out to support Asians. Now, these statements are still problematic, because there's that underlying assumption that you can go about organizing just by racial or ethnic affinity and not by political interests. But he said they wouldn't benefit, Vincent. Well, yeah, and like Professor Adolf Reed has said throughout the decades, you have to organize along the lines of political interests, and not based solely on identitarian lines. Adolf Reed uses the example of reparations. You know, reparations are nice and evokes the emotional response of rectifying the harm that was done, you know, because of slavery and such. But there are practical questions that remain. How are you going to organize around a policy that only a specific portion of the population benefit? Professor Cedric Johnson uses the example of Black Lives Matter. He talks about the Black Lives Policy Platform, um, and he says that it would be amazing if this platform was implemented, and it would no doubt help a lot of people. But in his article, The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, which um, he wrote for the, uh, this journal called Catalyst, he brings up concerns about the strategy and the thought behind Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it's a strong slogan that brings attention to the issues, but how will you bring about the majority needed to even pass this in the local level, let alone the national level? How can Black Lives Matter assume that just by, just through sheer unity based on race, can this agenda be passed? And lastly, Dr. Johnson notices that the organization claims to speak on behalf of blacks which seems to contradict Black Lives Matter's disdain towards traditional brokerage and client politics. Now, on a little side note, the idea of pushing more Asian representation in the media as a form of activism or politics seems completely absurd to me. Now, at most, it is the strengthening of the neoliberal order 
by adding a tint of social justice to neoliberal capitalism. Pushing for representation does not call for any sort of redistributive policies. It does not call for the challenge of capitalism or any of its devastating effects on working class people, black, brown, white, and Asian. Now, Professor Kenneth Warren puts it best when describing this ilk of politics as, quote, Anti-racists remain attuned to a vision of justice defined by ensuring equal access to hierarchically distributed social goods, such as family wealth, parentheses, and redressing historical impediments to the accumulation of wealth rooted in discrimination, end quote. Politics, if it can be even called that, of diversification and representation is profoundly bourgeois. It's an ideology of the professional managerial class, which seeks to demand recognition and, quote, a seat at the table within the framework of neoliberal capitalism. Neither wishes nor strives for social or political transformation, only a demand for recognition and representation. Professor Walter Ben Michaels sums it up nicely. Quote, Identity politics is not an alternative to class politics, but a form of it. It's the politics of an upper class that has no problem with seeing people being left behind as long as they haven't been left behind because of their race or sex. End quote. Now, another insightful quote from Professor Michaels is, quote, If everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed, there's no injustice when some people fail. End quote. Now, we're going to talk about the meritocratic and technocratic side of this equation in a future podcast. What this kind of politics does is legitimize and normalize our current economic and political system by framing justice solely as the removal of barriers to upward mobility. This assumes that the disparate outcomes of the system are fair, and just as long as every social group receives those outcomes in a proportional way, then it's all gravy. Not only that, it assumes that the consumption of media or the elevation of someone from a particular minority group to positions of power and prestige is somehow a transformative political act. Now this reminds me of what is typically called rainbow capitalism, where large corporations voice their support of the LGBTQ community by producing products adorned with rainbow flags or inspirational quotes and so on. And as a consumer, you're displaying your support of the LGBTQ community by purchasing these items. It adds a social justice element to enforce capitalist forces while linking politics to a culture of consumption. Now, from what I've witnessed, most activists are attuned to this kind of hypocrisy and realize the pernicious effects of such practices. Yet, as long as there are minorities deciding, dictating, and managing these practices, not just through rainbow capitalism, but through everyday relations as the CEO, the director, the manager, and so on, we applaud it. We think that it's a win for all minorities, while we forget about the brutalization, the exploitation of workers of all races and poor people of countries abroad, like particularly in Africa and Asia. This is why I've always believed that this is a fundamentally professional managerial class ideology one that assumes, whether nefariously or not, that the wins of the upper class is a win for all, since everyone is linked through race or identity. And this vision leaves a majority of working-class Americans behind, regardless of skin color. 
When I say it's not politics or activism, I don't mean to denigrate or disparage the work of people who truly believe that they are helping or working towards a goal. But it is also very possible to have a ruling class that is perfectly proportioned among each ethnic or identity group and still have grotesque levels of income and wealth inequality. The incarceration of over 2.3 million people, starvation wages, unaffordable health care, and so on. I've always used the example of Barack Obama. Barack Obama's election was deemed the beginning of America's post-racial age, the symbol of black achievement and the realization of the highest hopes of every young person of color. Now, to be fair, Barack Obama's election was historic, given America's past. Obama's election symbolized that anyone, regardless of race, gender, or sexual orientation, could achieve great success. Media pundits, the commentariat, and the professional managerial class continued to heap praises on him and celebrate his legacy. Yet, under Obama, wealth and income inequality continued to rise. Tens of millions of people lacked health care coverage, military action against poor people, poor nations, particularly those who were black or brown, continued, and millions continued to live in poverty. It's clear that Obama's presidency was not a victory for ordinary working people. Moreover, I found this sort of thinking extremely self-serving and self-promoting of one or other's credibility to stand for and represent the supposed values or desires of a particular social group. Hence, the repeated claims for more visibility in media as a way to counteract the negative stereotypes associated with Asians with more positive ones. And who is best served to fill this role? Why, the claimant and others from the professional managerial stratum who claim to be the best and brightest of the group, the one who can best display the positive attributes of Asians. Again, this is not an ideology that seeks to better the lives of ordinary working people, but only to clear the impediments to upward mobility within the confines of neoliberal capitalism. I remember talking to the same gentleman about how to go about fighting racism and prejudice. I stated that racism must be tied into political economy. Issues like tackling economic inequality, healthcare, jobs, so on. He disagreed and stated that economic inequality doesn't cause racism and it must be something else. While the same gentleman agreed that race is a social construct, and if race is a social construct and racism requires the existence of race, then racism must have been constructed and promulgated based on the unique circumstances and conditions of the time. This is the problem of race reductionist ideology. If there's no biological basis for race and we acknowledge that it was a social construct, then why do we treat racism as some kind of trans-historic cosmic force disconnected from the conditions of those times that is able to infect anyone at any time while appearing in whatever form possible? The subscribers to such ideas are more concerned with labeling what is racist and what is not rather than formulating a programmatic and practical approach to carry out their agenda. Okay, let's move on to the next quote, and this is really long. So person A is quoting another individual who says that this thinking is tribalist, and we don't want it in society. So this gentleman responds with, quote, Why yes, I'd like for all nations to become allies and friends, but the reality is we're getting attacked via media and physical violence, so we need to congregate and a strong block that can't be ignored. 
Person B writes, So yeah, white people can be close, loyal friends, but because of racial dynamics, it's hard for me to imagine that white people will stand up for you 100% of the time when it comes to racial matters. That being said, Asians can be snakes too, so not every Asian is automatically your friends either. Person A, quote, And if necessary, you meet force with force. If you want respect, just like an actual bully, you hit back with so much force that they think twice of messing with you. Person B. See the problem I have with this? Oh, actually, sorry. Person B is, res- is person B is responding to someone who says, if we want to avoid tribalism, then there should be unity. Okay, so person B responds with, See, the problem I have with this is that a lot of Asians will just be lapdogs for racists for the purpose of unity, such as the numerous number of Asians who are justifying Trump's Chinese virus statement as not racist. Or the Asians who yell back, but I'm not even Chinese, end quote. Okay, so hopefully you followed that, but there was a string of basically four, um, you know, person A was quoting something, and then he was, and then person B was saying something else, and then person A was saying something, and the person B was quoting someone and responding. So, oh, actually, in response, so my response to person A is, um, you know, he concludes with meeting racial and physical violence with force to the point where that ethnic group won't be messed with again due to the prospect of, um, of having strong reprisals. Now, not only is this tribalist thinking, but I think it reinforces the conceptions of race. You're saying that if people strike back hard enough, then that, quote, group won't be messed with again. Now, I'm thinking that this is precisely what Dr. Cornell West was talking about in his book, Race Matters, when he talks about the closing of ranks mentality. Now, Cornell West states that in a hostile environment, black nationalists promote a closing of ranks mentality that says blacks shall only rely on other blacks in a racist and unjust society. And this kind of thinking rests fundamentally on the concept of racial authenticity, which Cornell West criticizes and questions. Now, what the person in Subtle Asians Bay Area is saying is that we can't rely on others, only those within our own ethnic or racial groups. Now, obviously, this would mean dictating that, you know, Asian people only see themselves through the lens of race and not as school teachers, garbage men, software developers, Christians, conservatives, police, firemen, and so on. So, in other words, instead of thinking about the diversity of the Asian community, this line of thinking simplifies and condenses all these experiences into a monolithic Asian identity group, united only by racial affinity. I would like to add that this sounds oddly fascistic, or even nationalistic. One group perceives that it's under threat from another and uses violent measures to, de- to defend or punish the other party, and this fosters a cycle of violence without end. So I think not only will this breed violence and further reprisals, but such talk about defensive measures and punitive actions can only be used for political means to subjugate or repress perceived threats. And so Person B said that Asians can be snakes too, like the ones who defended Donald Trump for saying the Chinese flu or saying things like, I'm not Chinese when confronted about if they have coronavirus or not. Now, this person unwittingly answered his own question. The whole idea that some Asians can be snakes or Uncle Toms or whatever word you want to use, it it won't make sense if you believe in racial authenticity. 
that Asians are a monolithic group of a specific set of characteristics, interests, and values, and anything violating or diverging from these specific characteristics would amount to being a race traitor or a sellout. But if you see Asians, just like any other group, with its different relations, religions, political stances, diverse thought and experiences, and so on, then of course it would make sense. Of course it would make sense. We're not a monolithic group. There's no such thing as racial authenticity. Because we're humans, and we have diverse sets of beliefs and experiences. Now, we should always be careful when someone invokes the idea of racial authenticity, or claims to speak on behalf of Asian issues, or proposes that all Asians should unite under the banner of ethnic affinity. They should always be get the question, who's making the claim, who anointed that person to make the claim, and what's the purpose of it? So there's, you know, I always think there's a political purpose to these things, so we always have to question it. About the issues of, you know, white Americans not, you know, supporting Asian males. When you reach that conclusion, it shouldn't stop you from fighting or being more analytical. What are Asian American issues? Who has the authority to say that those are the issues? And more practically, how are you organizing to get your political program across? What's the strategy? Who's your base? Adolf Reed has been really clear about this in his work. Organizing solely based on anti-racism or identity isn't going to get you anywhere. It's important to recognize that the negative effects of capitalism affect all people, regardless of their skin color or identity. By organizing around an agenda that affects the daily lives of working people, are we able to formulate the alliances needed to tackle the issues? Some of these include housing, healthcare, education, jobs, and so on. Now, perhaps more importantly, we are in a precarious moment in history. We have grotesque levels of income and wealth inequality, an immoral and unjust healthcare system, high levels of poverty and opioid addiction, corporate control of our government, mass incarceration. We live in a profoundly sick and diseased country that beats down the poor, working people at every step. In these times, what is needed is a broad movement of working people, not isolated pockets of resentful and hateful ones, who seem vehemently opposed to reaching out and formulating coalitions due to the perceived different interests of social groups. Now, Bernie Sanders is right. History-making moments happen when millions of ordinary people come together and fight. That's how we got through the toughest moments in American history. That's what we need to get through such turbulent times right now. Now, historian Toure Reed notes that the New Deal coalition and the civil rights victories were led by coalitions of groups that had similar political interests, particularly egalitarian ones. Cedric Johnson remarked that if the civil rights movement was only about organizing black people, he would still be picking up cotton in the South or driving a school bus. So the notion of closing ranks that Cornell West described and being an isolated gang or group would only be a detriment to the resistance against neoliberal capitalism. Only by standing together with others, black, white, Asian, and so on, do we possess any chance of withstanding its thrust. 
Now, this is not a denial that racism, prejudice, or discrimination exists in our society. Far from it. This is a critique of the discourse that plagues our contemporary discussion on race and politics, with subtle Asians, Bay Area, being a place where it thrives. Now, in order to fight for a transformative agenda that seeks to improve the circumstances of all workers regardless of their race, background, sexual orientation, and so on, and to build a mass movement needed to counter the shadow of neoliberalism that threatens our very existence, we must abandon such thinking.